You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. NSA warns the GRU's sandworm outfit has been actively exploiting a known vulnerability in Exim. Someone is attacking industrial targets in Japan and Europe using steganography and other evasive tactics. NTT Communications is breached, and Michigan State University sustains a ransomware attack. Ben Yellen unpacks the president's executive order aimed at social media companies. Our guest is Vic Aurora of the Hospital for Special Surgery on protecting healthcare organizations during COVID-19. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 29th, 2020. The U.S. National Security Agency warned yesterday that Russia's GRU continues to exploit the XM mail vulnerability, CVE 2019-10149. NSA identifies the Russian unit involved as specifically belonging to GRU's main center for special technologies the group commonly known as Sandworm. The vulnerability was disclosed and patched in June of last year, and NSA advises users to apply it. This provides another object lesson in the importance of keeping software up to date. The GRU has been exploiting the bug since August 2019. It also provides another example of the ways in which the historically reticent NSA has become increasingly engaged in providing public warnings and advice on cybersecurity. Kaspersky outlines a campaign against industrial targets in Japan, Italy, Germany, and the UK. The specific goals of the campaign are unknown, although Kaspersky says they've observed destructive activity and extraction of data. The attackers use steganography in the data extraction process, that is, they hide code in an image. This and other aspects of the campaign make the attacks difficult to detect and block. Yesterday, U.S. President Trump signed an executive order on preventing online censorship intended to address ways in which social media are applying selective censorship that is harming our national discourse. It addresses Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which affords civil liability protection to online service providers that act as neutral platforms as opposed to editors. The Secretary of Commerce will lead a petition for rulemaking to clarify Section 230. Federal agencies will evaluate spending on platforms that engage in viewpoint discrimination, and the Federal Trade Commission will investigate unfair trade practices related to content moderation. Among the points that stand out in the order are its observation that the protections in Section 230 were designed narrowly 
to provide certain protection for minors. It also emphasizes the Act's provision that restrictions on content be done in good faith. And it asks the Federal Trade Commission to take a close look at social media companies' outsourcing of content moderation to third parties that themselves arguably engage in viewpoint discrimination. The order is widely viewed as a response to the president's recent experiences with Twitter. At issue is the difficult question of what counts as a neutral supplier of a service and what counts as being a publisher with responsibility for content. Thus, should Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter be treated like sellers of newsprint or like newspapers, like a telephone company, or like a television station? We'll hear more on the executive order from our guest, Ben Yellen of the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, a little later in the show. Several data breaches and ransomware incidents are being reported. NTT Communications, the Tokyo-based telecommunications service provider giant, has disclosed that one of its servers was breached. A relatively small number of customers is so far thought to be affected, a little more than 600. The attack began in a Singapore cloud server from where the attackers moved to an internal server and then to an NTT Active Directory server from which the data was taken. The criminal proprietors of NetWalker ransomware have also been active. They've hit Michigan State University and given the administration until next Thursday to pony up the ransom. If the university doesn't come up with the ransom, the amount of which isn't yet publicly known, the extortionists will release the sensitive data they've stolen. To show that they're in earnest, the gang has posted images of directories, a passport scan, and financial documents, leaping computer reports. ZDNet notes that NetWalker has recently been used against the Australian logistics company Toll Group and the Australian city of Vice. NetWalker is a ransomware-as-a-service operation that's actively recruiting new affiliates. And finally, what have people been learning with respect to cybersecurity during the pandemic emergency? As far as we can see, we're learning a great deal about improvisation under pressure, and we're also learning that we can live without, or at least work without, We've been following the COVID pandemic since the CyberWire, like many other businesses in our area, moved to remote work on March 16th. This was, of course, consistent with shelter-in-place guidance from public health authorities. Maryland relaxes some of its public health guidelines today, and this seems a good point at which to take stock of how the emergency has affected the cybersecurity sector. While the pandemic and its effects are far from over, its consequences for cybersecurity now seem clear enough for us to suggest some lessons we might draw from the experience. And it also seems to be the right time to roll our coverage of COVID-19-related news into our ordinary coverage of cybersecurity. We conclude this series with today's story. If there's one overarching observation to be made about the pandemic and its effects on cybersecurity, it's that improvisation under pressure creates unexpected challenges, risks, and opportunities. We'll have a final wrap-up Monday with our planned final daily update on COVID-19 and its effects on the cybersecurity community. Until then, enjoy the weekend. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Vic Aurora, Chief Information Security Officer of the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. He shares his insights on protecting a healthcare facility in the midst of COVID-19. So HSS is an orthopedics and rheumatology hospital with presence in uh, New York metropolitan area, Colorado, and Florida. Uh, We've been ranked number one in orthopedics for 10 straight years. Uh, We're also the official hospital for New York Giants, Mets, um, and a few others, uh, along with being a top teaching hospital with a well-respected orthopedic residency program. In terms of my role at HSS, I'm responsible for cybersecurity and risk management, uh, basically making sure that the digital uh, transformation at the hospital is done securely. We remain compliant with HIPAA and other regulations. And at the same time, we're able to take advantage of various uh, innovations out there in technology in a secure and safe manner while uh, making sure that we deliver better care on an ongoing basis. Can you give us some insights? So what sort of threat activities have you seen uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, so for the past six weeks, we've been in a state of uh, heightened awareness and four things kind of bubble up for me and my team. The first and foremost is a significant increase in COVID-19 related phishing attacks. To give you some numbers, uh, we see about 10 to 15,000 daily phishing email attacks on the organization. The range from uh, stimulus plans, paycheck programs, uh, WHO and CDC advisories, or protective equipment. The second thing, uh, which I think most of us are seeing, is uh, we have almost a 1,000% increase in work from home within the organization from prior to crisis uh, to now. And that has led to a significant recon of our public-facing environment. We've seen an uptick in exploitation of VPN infrastructure Um, as well as attacks on personal home routers. Uh, Some users have reported it uh, to us, and then we've seen an uptick in those reports. The third thing is, um, what I'd like to say is on-the-fly IT engineering, where consumer-grade tools uh, like Doodle for scheduling or WhatsApp or other collaboration tools, uh, people find them quick and easy to use, and uh, sometimes they end up deploying those for corporate needs and managing risk around that. 
has been challenging. And the last but not the least is uh, uh, the supply chain risks uh, because of uh, obvious constraints. We've had to uh, onboard some new vendors relatively quickly and making sure that they are secure and they align with all the best practices has been challenging. What is your approach in terms of balancing those risks when it comes to you have those urgent needs, you have those business needs, but at the same time, you've got to manage security? Yeah, so uh, before I get into uh, the tactical things that we've done, uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit about what has allowed us to do it uh, or get through the crisis uh, or at least come this far. The first and foremost is that we're able to draw inspiration from uh, the frontline healthcare workers, not just at HSS, but across the world. And uh, everybody in IT and cybersecurity very much appreciates the opportunity to support them in any manner. We find that very humbling. So that has allowed us to get inspired by them and um, uh, deliver the best cybersecurity that we can. The second is um, HSS is a place where uh, we attribute culture to our reputation and results all the time. So there has been an amazing job at the leadership level where they came up with new principles to um, handle the crisis, namely protecting our staff, protecting the organization and protecting the society. So that allowed us to uh, align all the activities to those principles and defer or cancel any non-COVID related priorities. So we were able to focus all in a very uh, harmonious manner. So the third thing is empathy. Um, on a personal note, I have a two-year-old uh, daughter and a six-year-old boy. The babysitter is no longer available, so we had to ask our in-laws for help. Uh, managing work from home, homeschooling our son, and managing daily routines has been challenging, and we had a few false starts, but then we found our rhythm. So I think it's uh, important to be cognizant that our teams are going through similar challenges. The, the crisis is not organizational. It's also a personal crisis. So being aware of that and allowing the team to work at any times that work for them has helped us to kind of earn their commitment and support. That's Vic Aurora, Chief Information Security Officer at the Hospital for Special Surgery. If you'd like to hear an extended version of this interview, check out our website, thecyberwire.com, and sign up for CyberWire Pro. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Uh, Ben, uh, we uh, we we uh, fired up the bat signal this morning to uh, get you back on the line here uh, right away because uh, I want to get your help unpacking this executive order that the president signed uh, yesterday on Thursday, uh, coming at social media and uh, Section uh, Two Thirty of the uh, Communications Decency Act. Unpack what's going on here for us, my friend. Oh, where to begin, Dave? Where to begin? Um, so I got a chance to read the executive order, and I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk today. 
I think the bottom line for viewers who don't want to hear a lot of, or listeners who don't want to hear a lot of legalese and uh, analysis of the Communications Decency Act in Section 230 is this executive order is relatively toothless. Um, I think it misinterprets a lot of legal precedents. It won't have much of an impact. It's largely a distraction, but it is, you know, certainly an example of the president willing to use the power of the federal government to at least threaten and intimidate social media companies whom he feels uh, are being biased against him. Uh, And it's also part of an escalating war between particularly Twitter and the president. And we've seen that over the past couple of days as they've flagged a couple of his tweets, one of them with a little note saying that it was uh, based on false and misleading information, and then one overnight where uh, they said that his tweet could have been interpreted as a call for violence. So I think that's just very important uh, context. So for those of you who do want the legalese, I'll get a, a little bit into the executive order itself, if that's uh, okay with you, Dave. Please, please. So a couple of things. Uh, they The executive order first kind of starts by stating general principles. These uh, social networks should have the goal of neutrality and maintaining robust debate. They say that Section 230 uh, of the Communications Decency Act, which does shield these sites from liability from the content posted by users, is not an unlimited license to inject uh, what they determine to be political biases into their content restrictions uh, and terms of services. So this is problematic for uh, a couple of reasons. For one, um, they they talk about that perhaps Twitter uh, could actually be liable under Section 230 because they are the creator of content. So they're talking about the instances when Twitter puts those little notices on the president's tweets. Um, they're saying, well, those types of notices, because Twitter is actually creating that content, that does not fall under Section 230. That narrowly is true. These uh, platforms are only shielded from liability as it relates to what users post on them, not their own content. But the government, through an executive order, cannot ban Twitter from putting its own commentary on particular tweets. That would be a very clear violation of the First Amendment. Um, And it would also um, get into areas of compelled speech, which the Supreme Court looks very uh, disfavorably upon. As the executive order continues, uh, just a couple of other you know things that stuck out to me. One, it asks the uh, Commerce Department, specifically the NTIA, to petition the FCC to develop regulations to interpret Section 230 according to how the president wants it interpreted in this executive order. So that can't really happen. For one, it's up to the courts to interpret what Section 230 means. It's not up to the executive branch. And just as importantly, um, the FCC does not have the authority to regulate these types of platforms. They've uh, Courts have explicitly rejected giving the FCC the authority to issue these regulations. Um, the executive order also calls on the FTC, uh, which does have a little bit more of a regulatory role. Um, they've called on, on them to issue their own regulations. You know, the FTC can... Uh, enforce actions to protect against unfair trade practices. Um, But that's, you know, that can happen as it relates to antitrust. It can't really happen as it relates to what we're talking about here with uh, Section 230. 
Then there are a couple of things that fall into provisions that don't necessarily carry that much force in terms of the force of law, but are still nonetheless concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the executive order empowers the attorney general to convene a working group with state attorneys general. Um, and that working group is allowed to report users uh, on these platforms that are posting problematic content. And that goes undefined in the executive order, but I think it's um, something that certainly uh, raised uh, a lot of eyebrows. And then lastly, the executive order talks about how if Twitter does not change their practices to comply with the guidelines set out here, then the federal government should at least consider ceasing advertising uh, on Twitter or any other platform. So the bottom line is it's... um, I think a, a relatively poorly drafted uh, and largely toothless effort to cut away at Section 230. If there really was a groundswell of opposition to 230, if uh, we really, as a society, wanted to change the law to remove the shield of liability for uh, the moderation of content on these on these platforms, that would be something that Congress would have to do. That's not something generally that the president is able to do through executive order. So what happens next? Uh, The president has put this out there. How does it make its way through determining what what actually happens? So that's a a great question. I mean, so much of this, the the process that he's describing is not a process that's actually going to lead anywhere. You know, it's like uh, telling somebody directions to a room in a house uh, that doesn't have anything in it. So, you know, it's instructing the NTIA to propose new rules and regulations consistent with this executive order to the FCC. But as I said, the FCC does not have authority over that. Um, So the FCC has no obligation to uh, accept or reject whatever the NTIA or the Department of Commerce presents it. So I don't really see how that's going to be productive for anyone. Um, I think that Mm -hmm. just sort of leads to a dead end. If this executive action uh, order doesn't create any new cause of action for any particular users, um, you know, the one tangible effect it might have is we'll see what, what this working group does led by the attorney general. They might recommend more concrete uh, enforcement actions. But until that happens, you know, there really is no realistic end game here on policy changes. Uh, it's just, I think... We can largely say it's a political document. It doesn't really carry much in terms of the force of law. All right. Well, uh, Ben Yellen, thanks for uh, joining us and providing some clarity. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 